Welcome to Everyday Wellness Podcast. I'm your host, nurse practitioner, Cynthia Thurlow. This podcast is designed to educate, empower, and inspire you to achieve your health and wellness goals. My goal and intent is to provide you with the best content and conversations from leaders in the health and wellness industry each week and impact over a million lives. Today, I had the honor of reconnecting with Dr. Will Cole. We last connected in 2021 on episode 138. He is a leading functional medicine expert who specializes in clinically investigating underlying factors of chronic disease and customizing a functional medicine approach. He is the author of many books, including the New York Times bestseller, Intuitive Fasting, and most recently, Gut Feelings. And of all the books that I read on the podcast, and I'm completely transparent about this, this is one of those books that I think is accessible for everyone and one that everyone would garner great benefit from. Today, we dove deep into the impetus for this book. We spoke at length about the toxic food culture, the role of mixed messages and the psychology of food, finding food peace, reducing our toxic tribalism, the impact of inflammatory foods and their impact on our gut microbiome, the role of the vagus nerve, how chronic stress is the ultimate junk food for the body, the role of adverse childhood events and trauma, and lastly, what is shame flammation? I hope you will enjoy this conversation as much as I did recording it. Welcome, Dr. Cole. It's a pleasure to have you back again. My goodness. Thank you so much for having me. It's always great to catch up. Yeah. So we we were talking before we started recording about how this book is unique and special to you. And I, I was saying that I've read all of your books, but this book to me really spoke to a lot that's not being addressed in the health and wellness space. And you do it in such a way that it's really accessible and beautiful. But what was the impetus? Was it, you know, you're at a certain point in your career and you feel like all these pieces are starting to make sense. You have individuals that are probably engaging in protocols and maybe they're not seeing the results that you want to see for them or they want to see. And you're realizing their things were not kind of aligning or understanding fully about the human body and our connection between our brain and our emotions and physiologically what's going on. Yeah. The book is, as with all the books previously there, it's born out of countless conversations that I have with our telehealth patients. And that's still my main focus and my day job is really looking at labs, looking at patients' cases and the complexities of things and what influences someone's biochemistry. And there's both a physiological component to it, meaning it'll impact things like inflammation and nervous system issues and endocrine issues. But there's also a psychological, mental, emotional, spiritual component to those variables impacting someone's physiology. So it's always been conversations like the what I'm talking about in gut feelings are always part of conversations I have with our patients. It's just a matter of, okay, when was I going to have this conversation in book form? And, you know, when you're writing a book, it's can the publishers see what you're talking about? <laughs> you know, can they vision this issue? And luckily, that Penguin Random House and Goop Press and Rodale, all the, the my publishers are really saw it and it's needed. It's needed because we live in such an age where there's so much great information out there. And I'm such an advocate for 
the democratization of health information, in many ways, the decentralization of health information, where people don't have the gatekeepers that once were when it comes to long form conversations, podcasts, articles, reading PubMed for themselves, going and reading the research for themselves. That never happened before. You'd have to really go and seek it out. But with the internet and the way that we are now, I I think people are informed now more than ever in many ways and empowered. But it's also this double-edged sword. And there's a lot of conflicting information online and it can be hard to know. It's not necessarily quote-unquote misinformation, but it's, is it information that's relevant for your life? Is it something that you need to pick up and actually do? And I wanted to have these complex conversations of really teaching people the path of learning what's worked right for your body and be your own end of one experiment. And you can learn and listen about other people and other people's paths and honor what's their path, but it's not necessarily what you need to be doing. And talking about the gut and the feelings, the physiological and the psychological and how things like chronic stress and unresolved trauma and shame, how these things impact our biochemistry, because it is something that I see play out in people's lives all too often. Well, and I think it's so needed in this space. You know, you speak quite a bit in the book about the role of bioindividuality, which I'm completely aligned with. And we talk a lot about on this podcast. You also talk about the toxic food culture. So well-meaning individuals that are kind of putting content out into the space and the, I want to say, you know, it could start at home. It could start with our interrelationships with our family and our loved ones that can erode into, you know, this degree of shame and feeling guilty. And you speak to this, the role of mixed messages. So let's really start the conversation there, because I think you do such a nice job of addressing the big elephant in the room. You know, a lot of people see these things, but they're not talking about it enough. And I think the more ability we have to open the discussion so that we're talking about these things, it will help and alleviate a lot of the pressure that individuals are feeling as they're on their own journey. Yeah. It's something that I really wanted to tackle in the book. And I, I realized that these are big topics and really deserve their own book, but uh, you know, it's the book's really talking about the sort of psychologically, the psychology of foods, choices that people make and the complexities of the food reasons why people make the food choices they make and anything within wellness, right? And really the path that I teach in the book is this third way, this path of food peace, which is a, a both and a path, right? Because there's with so much spheres on, in our culture, this sort of reductive toxic tribalism where it's us versus them, it's the other. I think that a lot of nuance and context is lost when you have that approach. And that happens on a governmental standpoint. It happens certainly internationally. And it also can happen in the wellness space, which you think, okay, we're talking about food and nutrition. How could it happen? But actually, and I've heard it said years ago, it's like, it's easier to change someone's religion than the foods that they eat. And I find that to be the case now more than ever, because people are so entrenched in their ideology, and it can become almost religious for some people. And the sort of religions of toxic diet culture, which we can call it that, and then the different spheres of that, whether it's veganism or carnivore or paleo or high carb or low carb or keto or faster or not faster, all of that stuff. And then I will say equally, toxic anti-diet culture, which is really a part of diet culture, really, because it, they're they're in the food wars just as much as any of the vegans and the carnivores. They're all kind of fighting each other. And one side is about eat less, work out more. It's about a following a strict food ideology. 
It's it's all about the rules and dogma. And then the other side, this, this anti-diet culture phenomenon is sort of the polar opposite in some ways, but exactly the same in other ways, because it's still follow our ideology. If you talk about any food changes, it's automatically labeled as toxic diet culture. And it they are honestly some of the, I would say the vocal ones on social media are some of the most intolerant, bullying people on social media and exactly what they hate in other people. They, they become this sort of malignant force on social media where a lot of them are these uh, RDs and they are really intolerant of any viewpoint other than their own. And I think that the reality is there are some foods that don't love humans back. And just because you talk, if we talk about foods that raise blood sugar or impact digestion negatively, uh, increase fatigue that we know from research uh, will contribute to that. Uh, and certainly I can tell you clinically, there are some foods that don't love people back and avoiding those foods isn't restrictive. It's not toxic diet culture, it's self-respect. So it's really a conversation that I wanted to have for both sides of these polar opposite worlds and saying, can there be a grace? Can there be a lightness? Can there be a complexity? Can there be a spectrum uh, where we can have, we can realize this path of food peace, where we avoiding foods that don't love us back isn't restrictive, it's self-respect. And continuing to eat foods that don't love us back is like staying in a toxic relationship and wondering why you're still miserable. And all, and we cling, people cling to this sort of, it sounds so good, this, it sounds so noble of there's no such thing as a bad food and body positivity and all this stuff sounds really noble, right? Because we, of course, want to be positive about our bodies. But the truth is accepting and loving yourself where you're at now, loving yourself with where you're at now doesn't necessarily mean you're accepting where you're at right now. And it's okay to level up and evolve and pivot and find out what loves you back. So in many ways, this conversation that I'm having in the book is about healthy boundaries, which people love to have that conversation, but not about food. And I feel like if we really come from a place of self-respect, then you really have to realize there are some foods that don't love us back. But it doesn't make you a bad person if you choose to eat that food. And that's it's not a moral failure, failure, but it is an awareness tool that I want people to have. So that's, I don't know if that answers your question, but these are things that I think that I think need to be talked about and have a nuanced middle ground conversation around this where we can acknowledge some foods don't love us back, but also operating from a place of self-respect. Today's podcast is sponsored by NutriSense. It combines cutting-edge technology and human expertise so you can see how your body responds to different types of nutrition, stress, exercise, sleep, and where you are in your menstrual cycle in real time. And by pairing a continuous glucose monitor with their app and expert nutritional guidance, NutriSense can help you reach your health goals. And the best part is it's not just a program where they send you the CGM and you have to figure it out on your own. Each subscription plan includes one month of free expert nutritionist support. Your nutritionist will work with you one-on-one, -on -one, interpreting your data 
and providing customized advice to help you reach your health goals. The last time I had my CGM on, my registered dietitian and I troubleshooted over some specific concerns that I had. And whether you're aiming to lose weight, stabilize your energy, or just feel better overall, NutriSense offers the guidance and support you need. And lasting sustainable change takes time and can be achieved through a longer term subscription. That's why I encourage my patients and clients to consider three, six, or 12-month subscriptions where it's actually less expensive and allows you to not only achieve your goals, but also to ensure that you stick to your healthy lifestyle for the long term. As I've mentioned before, I have found the CGMs I've used through NutriSense to be incredibly insightful, specifically to carbohydrate tolerance. I would not have known that plantains spiked my blood sugar without this information. It's also been hugely helpful for tailoring to workouts and sleep quality. And so for me, even though I am metabolically healthy, I find the insights to be particularly helpful to tailor my lifestyle changes to my blood sugar. Visit NutriSense.io slash EWP and use the code EWP for $30 off plus one month of free nutritionist support. Be sure to let them know you're a listener of the Everyday Wellness Podcast when they ask you how you heard about them. This is one of my favorite ways to take care of my health and one of my top recommendations for all of my patients and clients. Have you guys heard about a bioactive whole food on the market with 5,000 published research studies backing it? When my oldest son needed to go on antibiotics a few months ago, I discovered Armra Colostrum and the benefits for him and his recovery from being on antibiotics have been instrumental in me now recommending this to my dairy non-sensitive patients and clients. Armra's colostrum strengthens immunity, ignites metabolism, fortifies gut health, promotes hair growth and skin radiance, and powers fitness performance and recovery. My son has mentioned to me over and over again how great his gut feels, how he has improved his digestion and gut function as well. Colostrum is a rich, exclusive source of immunoglobulins or antibodies that optimize our immune defense even during cold and flu season. And we know that mucosal barriers house over 80% of our body's immune cells, including including the antibodies IgG and SIG-A. And these immunoglobulins bind and intercept harmful particles like viruses, bacteria, and toxins, blocking them from crossing into the barriers into our bloodstream. And Armour's colostrum contains the highest levels of SIG-A and IgG to ensure your most fortified first line of protection. It's sustainably sourced, and it's important to know that you want to mix colostrum only with cold liquids or foods or dry scoop it into your mouth. This is also great for the oral microbiome. And we've worked out a special offer for my everyday wellness community where you can receive 15% off your first order. Go to tryarmra.com slash Cynthia15 or enter Cynthia15 to get 15% off your first order. That's T-R-Y-A-R-M-R-A.com slash Cynthia15. You definitely want to check it out. Well, I think it's a very important conversation and one that we probably haven't spoken about enough on this podcast about understanding that this kind of rigid dogmatism that we're seeing in this space can be hugely problematic. I have people much like I'm sure you and your team are fielding questions almost every day, emails, DMs on social media. People are feeling less than because they 
ate, you know, birthday cake, or they feel less than because they didn't fast 18 hours out of the day, or they had more than one meal. And, you know, as I try to explain to my team, I think that we get to a point where we've lost focus on what is most important. And there's one quote in this section of the book that I want to read because it really resonated. We should not normalize restriction or dieting for the sake of dieting, but neither should we normalize foods that sabotage our physical and mental health. And I think this is such an important distinction to make. What we are advocating for is that you are making choices based on what is best for you, even if your partner, your significant other, your best friend, your mother lives very differently. I think that these kinds of conversations are very powerful and much needed. I completely agree. Um, And thank you for that. I think that within the wellness world, and specifically, there's so many of us within the wellness world that realize this nuance, realize this context, and it's just lost on social media, right? It's just, it's black or white. There's no, we lose all of that. It's so clickbaity. It's so like, I can think of anything, so many things with the wellness. I could think of people that use it for good, that need to use it. They're doing it in the right way for them, but it's not actually needs to be applicable to everyone under the sun. And I think people on social media, I think that aren't, that don't look at labs for a living, that don't really immerse themselves in this nuance and context can get, they're almost afraid of the fact that somebody's path may look different than them. And that it's, we're not making blanket statements saying everybody has to do this because if they read anything that I've written, I've always talked about bioindividuality, always finding out what works for your body. And you can read something or hear something and you don't have to do all the things. And I think that's where we're really, we need to be empowered as consumers to see what can I pick up from this information and what do I sit down and say, it's not for me. And I think we don't give people enough credit and maybe we have weakened ourselves as a culture where we have to consume everything and take it as gospel, but maybe somebody else's gospel, but maybe for you, it's not something you need right now. And I think that there, this is like a lost art of informed consent and a lost art of like being empowered as consumers uh, that I think, I don't know how we get back to it, but hopefully in my small way, the book really shows people they don't have to be afraid about information that may not be right for them. It can actually make them sharper and learn about something different. Yeah. And it's the power of the N of one. It's a degree of experimentation. Maybe someone does, for an example, maybe someone tries carnivore after being hospitalized. And I'm talking about myself because that helped me heal, but I didn't, I I don't do carnivore the rest of the time. I did it for nine months and that was what was necessary. But then I go back to eating vegetables and I go back to eating fruit because that's what makes my body feel good. And I'm Mm -hmm. metabolically healthy and I can actually do really well with that. And so when we're talking about, you know, you mentioned alluded to some of these foods that do not serve us well from the research, what are the types of foods that you have found through working with thousands and thousands of patients that do not serve the best needs of our bodies? And there are kind of some very specific ones. I don't think these are any surprise to anyone, but I think it goes without saying when we talk about the role of inflammatory foods, when we talk about the net impact on our brain, our gut, the gut microbiome, our overall health, you know, there are several foods that you talk about in the book that are things that we should really limit Mm -hmm. and or avoid as much as possible. 
Yeah. And there's a lot of bio-individuality even with those convers- with these foods, right? Because we know people that can have some levels of these and be fine, uh, their body can handle some stress, some resilience, and that sort of cliched 80-20 rule can apply for many people. Most of the people that I deal with with autoimmune conditions clinically can't necessarily, in the throes of a flare-up, follow the 80-20 rule. So again, nuance and context is even applicable here that it depends on who's hearing this information and how it's applied in their life. And there's always better for you versions of these things. You're almost always, right? So what I would call the core four plus one, if I could have, it doesn't rhyme, but the like the five things that are either ingredients or things to look out for that don't love most humans back in varying degrees to varying degrees and in varying amounts of consumption. Uh, number one would be, let's say start with sugar. I think that looking at sugar and its impact in our culture, specifically the processed refined sugar in absence of fiber is going to be impacting the human physiology in a really negative way to varying degrees. So I would just really what I'm empowering the reader to do in gut feelings is just to be mindful and do a sugar audit for yourself and see how much grams of added sugar you're consuming in a day. And even the nicer sounding euphemisms for sugar, when you think, look at things like agave nectar, it sounds so natural, like you're squeezing this agave in this little cup and you're just sipping it from the garden. The reality is still high in fructose. And the average American consumes too much processed sugar, too much fructose specifically, which can impact insulin resistance, can impact blood sugar. When you're looking at the statistics, the vast majority of the human race is insulin resistant. That's not normal. That's just common. There's a difference. And it is largely driven by the foods that we eat. So we have to have a conversation about the foods that we eat when the majority of what's killing the human race is lifestyle driven. And it's actually, I mean, an act of love and to be an advocate for someone you care for and saying, I want, this is hurting you. And let's have a conversation about this. So look at the grams of added sugar and not to say you've devoided all costs, but just be mindful of the amount of, that you're consuming. And for your own bio-individuality, look at decreasing that if you're consuming that's too much for things that don't love you, too much of something that doesn't love you back. So that's number one. Number two would be gluten-containing grains. Some people have mild reactions, some people have severe reactions. There's a spectrum there of people that have responses, but is it the grain or is it what we've done to it? Or is it a bit of both? I think it's probably a bit of both. I think it's the hybridization of the wheat. I think it's what we're spraying on this grain supply and it's the preparation of it. Like it's, it's not like a fermented sourdough. It's not necessarily organic. It's not soaked and sprouted. It's people are over consuming and feasting off of a famine food that's stored well throughout human history, but now we're consuming it at breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Uh, so it's, it's, there's an evolutionary mismatch that when, when it comes to our relationship with grains, I think for most people, um, and some people, again, the better for you versions are out there. Like sourdough will break that gluten protein down, make it more digestible. Ancient grains are less hybridized. They organic, not being sprayed with these things. There are better for you versions, but I think we need to look at all the variables for the individual. Third would be industrial seed oils, things like canola oil, vegetable oil, soybean oil. Most people that listen to your podcast, I'm sure are aware of this, but it's, you know, I, I, my position on this is a bit more nuanced too, in the sense of, I don't necessarily think they're by themselves, the worst things in the world, but they are overconsumed, and the ratios of omegas three, six, and nine, these polyunsaturated fatty acids are just disproportionate. There's an 
evolutionary epigenetic genetic mismatch there too, because Americans aren't having enough long chain omega-3 fatty acids and too much of these omega-6. So it's a pro-inflammatory state when there's a disruption of these uh, omega fats. So if someone's going to have low levels of these industrial seed oils that are in pa packaged foods, box foods, it's not the end of the world for the average person, but look at the overconsumption of them and look at your underconsumption of long chain omega-3 fatty acids in their whole food form. And they, from an environmental standpoint, these things are not good at all. And what's bad for the planet is bad for us. And I think we do need to have a conversation about that as far as the sort of mono ag growing of things like uh, rapeseed and corn and soy and uh, things like that. And then the next would be dairy. Many people have dairy reactions and it's, is it what we've done to the cow? You know, maybe it's the crossbreeding of cows, with beta A1 casein, where there is an ancestral evolutionary mismatch there where we're over consuming a dairy protein casein that our ancestors would not have consumed. So I kind of take that position on most of those foods, right? When you see it through the lens of an ancestral health perspective, um, and there are better for you versions for that. I mean, organic, grass-fed, fermented dairy, similarly to the grains, it will make it more digestible. The A2 milk will make it more digestible. Uh, but even when you get the best version, there are some people that still have sensitivities to it. These exist on a spectrum. And the plus the one, the plus one is alcohol. You know, it, it is, it's not a food, even though maybe some people treat it as such. It's a neurotoxin. There's no way around it. And it's, there's no healthy amount of alcohol. And I think that that's another source. So those are the foods or ingredients of foods or drinks that don't love the human race back to varying degrees. Yeah, I think it's important. And I, I love that you are encouraging people to understand that small amounts of these foods may be tolerated. Um, obviously, if you are metabolically healthy, insulin sensitive, you probably have more wiggle room in terms of consumption, even if it's occasional. But if the average American right now is not metabolically healthy, you really have to examine your relationship with these foods. And, and I love that you know you touched on the alcohol piece because that has started to become a conversation that we are, we're having more and more on this podcast just to bring awareness. I always say there's no judgment if you choose to drink alcohol or you're choosing to consume dairy but definitely understanding the interrelationship, the net impact, not just on you emotionally, but also on the role of the gut microbiome. And maybe this is the, the time to pivot and really talk about, you know, at the beginning of the book, you're really emphasizing this gut brain connection and helping people understand that the foods that we eat do impact our neurotransmitters. They impact our mood. Uh, there's so much more to it than just looking at food as fuel. Yeah, it is. And the book is very much just as much as about what we're feeding our bodies with the breakfast, lunch, and dinner. It's what are we feeding our head and our heart? What are we really nourishing our soul? And what's the space in which we eat the meal? You know, when you're dealing clinically, I deal a lot with people that do have food reactions, do have autoimmune issues, do have digestive problems, do have complex health issues. That food is a variable, but the space in which they eat, they eat that meal the mindset and heart set in which they eat that meal will will produce a completely different result. If they're coming into it from a place of fear and shame and obsession and dread, that's going to produce a completely different outcome than if someone's eating in more of a parasympathetic nervous system regulated state. So the gut and the feelings, the physical and the mental, emotional, spiritual. So 
for every gut tool, right, for every physical clinical nutrition tool that I talk about in the book, there's a feelings tool where we're really looking at the mindset and heart set around life and our relationship with our body, our relationship with food, our relationship with life itself, because it will impact our physiology just as, as much as a meal, just as much as the next meal. And I even call it, call these feeling things, metaphysical meals, like how is it impacting our biochemistry? So it's profoundly important, but it's very nebulous in the sense of it's more prescriptive and black and white for me to say, you know, these foods have been shown to do X, Y, and Z and, you know, build a protocol around that. And we do that, right? For patients, we obviously do that in the book too, but it's a lot more complex and non-linear when you're looking at things like feelings. You can't tell somebody to just not stress, right? Then they stressing about not stressing or don't have fear around that food that caused a flare up before. I mean, that's big. That's a big process. That's a big healing process of healing, not only their body, but then healing their relationship with food. Because when you're talking about autoimmunity and food is a variable, or when you talk about digestive problems or metabolic issues where food is a variable for many people, how do you not want to have that trauma that you had around that food? If that food caused a flare up or something like this. And that those are the people that I wrote gut feelings for to really look at because many people within wellness can start with the best of intentions, but really lose their way. And then they end up fearing all these foods. And I meet them uh, via telehealth and they're eating three different foods and they have so much stress and anxiety and orthorexia, which is disordered eating around healthy foods around all the rest of them. And we have to know, okay, what came first, the chicken or the egg? Cause it's oftentimes a bit of both because the stress and anxiety will end up whittling that list of uh, quote unquote foods that love them back will be shorter and shorter and shorter. So you have to really not only heal their body and improve immune system resilience, gastrointestinal health, gut health, et cetera, but you also have to heal the relationship with food so they can, their, their limbic system is not, their nervous system is not so hypervigilant where it's really the stress and anxiety that's creating the reactions, not the food itself. I think it's such a good point. And for the benefit of listeners who may not be as familiarized with the autonomic nervous system and looking at the sympathetic versus the parasympathetic and the enteric nervous system, can we just briefly address So, when you're talking about people that are hypervigilant, stressed, that's, you know, when they're sympathetic dominant, but understanding that our bodies are really designed to be optimized in the parasympathetic where we can rest and digest and you know, secrete adequate amounts of bile and, and break down and detoxify. And so maybe kind of explaining that a little bit in terms of context will help many listeners because on almost a daily basis, again, as I'm sure it is for you as well, we get questions from people saying, you know, I did, I did a histamine diet or I did this kind of diet and I'm still having symptoms. And to your point, so much anxiety, so much shame, so much distress around food, which should really be something that we savor and enjoy. Yeah. Yeah, it's again, these what are we feeding our head and our heart that's influencing our physiology? I think that's a, a big important ingredient to the outcome of how that meal made you feel. And the so the autonomic nervous system, when you're talking about the nervous system, you're talking about there's two main branches that sympathetic, parasympathetic. It's like a seesaw in some ways, you can think of it like that. And the sympathetic, everybody has heard the phrase fight or flight or flee, right? It's that more stress response, but it's needed. It's not inherently bad. It's needed to protect us. It's needed when we are in a, a state of threat or danger, we need these mechanisms to be in play, sort of a neuroendocrine 
aspect of our body, the interconnection between the nervous system and our hormonal endocrine system. And we could say a neuroimmunoendocrine axis, the way that impact of inflammation even, it's not inherently bad. It's just these crosstalk between the nervous system, the immune system, and the endocrine system that's there for our survival. And But the parasympathetic is the other branch of that. It's the resting, digesting, hormone-balanced, hormone-regulated state where we need that to be operating appropriately as well. Problem is imbalance in some ways. And when we say a nervous system that's dysregulated, what we're actually talking about for most people, it's a hypervigilant sympathetic response. That fight or flight flee is overactive in tonality and underactive is the parasympathetic that resting digesting hormone balance state is underactive or more specifically oftentimes what we're talking about is poor vagal tone the vagus nerve is the largest cranial nerve in the body and it's connecting the gut and the brain in many ways the gut's the second brain people have heard of that right the gut and brain are formed from the same fetal tissue 95 percent of serotonin our happy neurotransmitter is made in the gut. 50% of dopamine, our pleasure neurotransmitter is made in the gut. These don't pass through the blood-brain barrier, but what they seem to do is improve or support GI motility, GI movement, which works upon that vagus nerve, which is really innervating that resting, digesting state. A lot of people to varying degrees in our culture today have poor or weak vagal tone, which their sympathetic is overactive, their parasympathetic resting, digesting is underactive. So they're dealing with things like different inflammatory problems, different mental health issues like anxiety and depression, chronic fatigue syndrome, or just somewhere on that fatigue spectrum. And they're in a hypervigilant state. They're anxious and exhausted, wired and tired. That's sadly the majority of the human race. So that's the mechanism of action. That's what's going on here, where we need to help modulating the nervous system and the immune system and the nervous system in a positive way, which really is what gut feelings is all about. And how does this differentiate between, you know, low vagal tone and dysautonomia, which I know is starting to become, you know, a terminology that more people are familiarized with. But when you're trying to differentiate between poor vagal tone, sympathetic dominance and dysautonomia, how do these differentiate? Yeah. So I talk about dysautonomia in the book. It's something that we see clinically, but it's just one end of a larger spectrum, right? I mean, dysautonomia is the diagnosable labeled term in conventional medicine, which certainly it is problematic and it is a growing problem because we're dealing with well these these variables that I'm talking about. But it is when the nervous system is stuck in a hypervigilant state all the time and they have things like panic attacks, heart palpitations, they're never able to calm down and the nervous system is really dysregulated to a very extreme level. But I would say that it exists on a spectrum, just like a lot of health issues. And there's a lot of nervous system dysregulation spectrum issues where they're not, they would not be going and being officially labeled as dysautonomia, but they're having a lot of the symptoms. And they, if you run labs, you're going to see a lot of these issues. You're going to see cortisol dysregulation going on. You're going to see estrogen, progesterone, testosterone levels being impacted by this neuroimmunoendocrine issue. You're going to see higher inflammation issues, blood sugar issues, and a lot of symptoms that are associated with this dysregulated nervous system phenomenon that we're facing because of backing up a little bit. It's where keep talking about with foods. It's this epigenetic genetic mismatch. The majority of our genetics haven't changed in 10,000 plus years, but the way that we're doing life 
is very different and has changed very much. So our genes are living in this brave new world, which it's caught, we're paying the price of it and how we are feel in our health from a, from a human health standpoint. Right. And I think that it really brings up a good point that you can exist on this spectrum. Certainly in cardiology, we saw like the worst manifestation of dysautonomia. We saw POTS. So this postural orthostatic hypotension, which was extreme. And so as I've, you know, kind of relearned, you know, in the functional medicine space, more about dysautonomia, it can be very mild. It might be people who need more electrolytes. They may have some degree of hypermobile joints and not even realize that they have this hypervigilant sympathetic system. And so in the book, you discuss the role of chronic stress. And so this is a nice segue into that conversation, how chronic stress is actually the ultimate junk food for the body. Can you explain this a little bit more? Because this section in the book to me was really just made so much sense. And as I stated to you before, putting all these pieces together that I don't see a lot of other individuals putting together is going to be, have such a huge impact on listeners and um, followers as well. Thank you. Yeah. And it is this, it's a lot to unpack, right? When you're talking about stress and its impact on our biochemistry, you have to give people tools to act that are actually realistic, that are sustainable, but you also have to educate people on the cause of, you know, what stress actually doing is people inherently know it's not good for them, but many people will normalize it for themselves. Or they, you know, if you ask them to like rate their stress zero to 10, they'll say like a three or five, something like moderately high, but it's really an eight out of 10. It's so relative and subjective compared to some people just because it's common, they normalize it for them. Just because something's common for many of these issues doesn't necessarily mean it's normal. And just because something's your everyday, just because you're you're like used to that, you know, go, 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 hustle culture and burnout as a badge of honor doesn't necessarily mean that it's actually normal at all. And it's impacting, when you look at the statistics, the majority of reasons why people go to their doctor for health complaints the majority of health problems that are really impacting our society, when you're looking at type 2 diabetes, cancer, heart disease, autoimmune issues, stress is implicated in pretty much everything. Uh, when you're looking at it as being a variable into either the exacerbation of symptoms, the triggering of symptoms, the formation of the, the dysfunction. So it's very important ingredient. And people sometimes within wellness are so fixated on the food part and the exercise part. They're not fixated on the, where they're not focused or aware of the impact that their daily low grade or high grade chronic stress is impacting, how it's impacting their levels, how it's impacting their blood sugar, how it's impacting cortisol levels, how it's impacting inflammation levels, how's it impacting their nervous system. So yeah, it's important, but then it's, it's how do we, renegotiate our relationship with our life, right? And, you know, I really talk about something that Eckhart Tolle talks about of any, in, in a given situation, can we change, leave, or accept? We have to pick one. Do we have to change the situation? Do we have to accept it or leave it? And whether it's a job or a relationship or a habit or something that's not loving you back in your life, we have to have this sort of come to Jesus moment where we realize what are we doing? And I see people that have to make that decision for a relationship with patients. 
our patients have to make their relationship or relationships in their lives and either change, leave or accept it. A job, change, leave or accept it. And these are things that are causing them stress and they have to either be in radical acceptance because they cannot change or leave it or in some cases they have to change or leave it. And these are important. These are important modulators of our biochemistry. At some point, we've all been sold a big fat lie. It's called the protein misconception. So starting in the 1980s, we all believe that more protein equated to more muscle growth. And I'm here to tell you it's a big misconception. This has a great deal to do that our body can only absorb protein that's broken down into smaller building blocks called amino acids. It doesn't matter if you're consuming 30 grams of protein or 300 grams of protein. If you don't have a sufficient supply of enzymes to digest the protein, your muscles will ultimately be unable to use these as vital building blocks. That's why it's crucial you take a high quality digestive enzyme. The one I trust and use myself is called Masszymes by Bi Optimizers. Masszymes is a full spectrum enzyme formula with more protease than any other commercially available product. With five different forms of protease. Plus, it contains all the other key enzymes you need for optimal digestion. If you're experiencing bloating, gas, or digestive distress, a contributing factor can be that your body is no longer producing as much digestive enzymes. And you can try Masszymes today, risk-free. They have a 365-day full money-back guarantee and is the gold standard in the industry. Go to biooptimizers.com slash Cynthia. That's B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com slash Cynthia and use promo code Cynthia10 for 10% off of any order. Again, that's promo code Cynthia10 for 10% off any order. Do you find yourself struggling to get a good night's sleep? If so, you may be dealing with a hidden mineral deficiency. It is not at all uncommon in perimenopause and menopause to deal with sleep challenges. And we know that one of many contributory reasons for poor sleep can be a reduction in specific minerals that help regulate sleep quality, including magnesium, which is involved in GABA, which is our body's main calming neurotransmitter. We also know that we need potassium to create melatonin. And this is a hormone that is a master antioxidant, but is also utilized to help induce sleep We also think about things like zinc, which can balance excitatory neurotransmitters like glutamate. And if it's overactive, meaning if your glutamate levels are too high, it can prevent your brain from becoming more relaxed and inducing sleep. And lastly, selenium increases both our deep sleep and sleep duration. All these minerals matter a lot for sleep and any imbalances or deficits can have a major impact on the quality of sleep you get each night. And that's why I love Beam Minerals. They offer a full spectrum mineral supplement that gives you every essential mineral your body needs in the right doses, all in a highly absorbable liquid form. All you do is take a shot of bean minerals about an hour before bed. Don't worry, it tastes like water. And you'll replenish all of your body's minerals in about 30 seconds and give your brain what it needs for deep restorative sleep. I've been using this product over the last several months. I've really been impressed with the improvement in my sleep metrics, which I like to share on social media with my followers. And if you want a simple way to improve your sleep, head over to www.beaminerals.com and use code 
Cynthia for 20% off your first order. That's www.bminerals.com and use code Cynthia for 20% off your first order. And so when we're looking at the role, and I love, again, that you put a lens on the role of trauma. And in the past year, I've had Gabby Bernstein and I've had Gabor Mate talking about the role of trauma. And certainly that has opened up my eyes of the net impact. So even starting in our childhood, adverse childhood events and the net impact on not just autoimmunity, but also these scars that can you know, weave their way into our entire landscape of our lives, but also the role of um, also weight loss resistance. And so let's at least spend some time talking about trauma, because I do think this is so significant to the point that it is now weaving itself into conversations I'm having fairly regularly on the podcast because we're bringing to greater light. You know, I trained in the inner city and we used to think of trauma as being big T trauma. And yet we recognize now that trauma can be little t trauma, and that can be as significant, if not more so. Yeah. Yeah. And I think you're right. People will oftentimes compare themselves to bigger t traumas, you know, and it's, that's even relative, right? It's what's your own bio-individual response to that experience and comparing yourself to other people is no way. It's really gaslighting yourself, right? It's, well, it's not that bad. You know, I didn't go through a genocide. I didn't go through a Holocaust. I didn't go. So it's therefore not that bad. Or I know someone worse off such and such. So-and-so my friend went through a lot worse than me. So they, they will have these sort of gaslighting conversations with themselves and somehow think that's not a piece to their puzzle. And, and that's what it is for many people. It's a piece of the puzzle. It's not necessarily the only piece of the puzzle. For some people, it is a significant piece of the puzzle, but something that we should at least be curious enough to explore what is a variable that, that my experiences over my life, whether it be current chronic stress and or past trauma, unresolved trauma, how is it impacting my biochemistry today? So we have, you mentioned ACE, the ACE score, the adverse childhood event experiences. We have every telehealth patient fill that questionnaire out when we're first meeting them. And we're talking about really intimate things like, was there physical abuse growing up? Was there sexual abuse growing up? Was there neglect? Was there substance abuse growing up? And the higher the ACE score we know from research, it is associated with increased levels of autoimmune issues, things like anxiety, depression, fatigue, chronic fatigue syndrome, fibromyalgia issues. Two, you mentioned hormonal issues like weight loss resistance. Yes, even that metabolic issues are associated with these higher ACE scores. And this is a piece to the puzzle for many people. And we have to realize that, yes, we want to look at, we look at the higher ACE scores as being more obvious, but I see people with very, not even that relatively that high of ACE scores, but it's still a significant piece of the puzzle for them, meaning their response to that experience was a bigger piece of the puzzle for them. And it's so relative and so bio-individual when you look at this. Um, so it's it's our body, in short, our body is a cellular library and our thoughts, our words, our experiences are the books that fill up that library. And it's cumulative over time. And what's that tipping point? What's the straw that broke the camel's back? Um, you know, and, and for many people, it's maybe something in their current, you know, chronic stress. Maybe it's a job or caring for a, an ailing parent, or maybe it's a virus or a gut issue that triggered it. But the trauma was there in their body that decreased their body's resilience. So when something was the tipping point, it was it set it over the edge. And people have to realize that oftentimes that 
precipitating thing, even you know, if there is a precipitating thing, that that trigger is not the only thing within the bucket. The bucket's been over accumulating stuff over the course of their lifetime and experiences unresolved trauma is a factor when you're looking at that bucket. We all have different bucket sizes too. And that's bio-individuality. Some people have big buckets. Some people have a lot of resilience and a lot of tolerance for stressors, either physiological stressors, environmental toxins, gut issues, nutrient deficiencies, being, you know, these type of problems or psychological uh, variables like stress and trauma, et cetera. We can't change our bucket size, but we can change what we put in it and start to empty that bucket over the course of, of our, our healing journey, our nonlinear healing journey. And uh, both are both sides, both the gut and the feelings are both important parts for many people's journey. I think it's really important that, you know, listeners, if you're already connected with a functional integrative medicine provider, or even an allopathic trained provider that is looking beyond the traditional kind of, you know, root cause versus symptomatology focus, understanding that if you're not getting the results you're looking for, what you anticipate, that there may be a significant emotional, spiritual component that is impeding getting the results that you're looking for. Now, there was another term in the book, which was new for me that I think listeners would enjoy learning more about. You talk about shame inflammation. So we've talked about foods that create inflammation in the body that can contribute to a variety of different types of health issues. But the concept of shame, and I know Brene Brown's work is pivotal in this area. She calls shame as lethal. And I would agree with that. And certainly if we're talking energetically, shame is you know much lower on this energetic spectrum than other more positive kind of feelings that we can experience. But let's talk a little bit about how shame can be at the basis for many health issues and as well as emotional health issues that people are experiencing. Yeah. So shame inflammation, it's like my made up word on this mind body phenomenon, right? It, it is how does something like shame, which I, I talk about Brene in the book and her research and what she says about shame and other researchers, what are they saying of how something like shame can influence our physiology, but then what's causing the shame, right? And, and oftentimes for many people, it's unresolved trauma and or chronic stress. And chronic stress is one that, you know, if people are stressed out, they're not present with their loved ones. They're maybe like snapping and snippy because they're stressed out. Um, they aren't spending quality time with the ones that they love because they're stressed. They're on their phones a lot. They're looking to distract and numb themselves. There's a lot of shame around that and foods that don't, they're eating foods that don't love them back because they're stress eating. Um, so there's a lot of shame inflammation when it comes to chronic stress, just as much in many ways as the unresolved trauma part. Uh, and people live in varying degrees with living with this shame inflammation of this sort of emotional food that they're feeding themselves that's impacting things like like inflammation and it's impacting that neuroimmunoendocrine system that we talked about earlier so and it's these practices these acts of stillness these feeling tools that i talk about within the protocol of the book that are really meant to metabolize stored shame to metabolize stored trauma to metabolize stored stress in their body so their neuroimmunoendocrine system can be properly um, functioning can, can be in a regulated state. Um, and that can look different for different people. I mean, self-compassion was specifically with self-compassion, I think has some compelling evidence that I talk about in the book and, and weave it throughout the protocol there. So people can really start to learn this sort of grace and lightness for 
wellness and the and heal their relationship with their body and heal the relationship with food. I talk about the one study that participants had to do public speaking and math, these stressful events. There could be a lot of shame around inadequacy and embarrassment, right? And they had higher interleukin-6 levels. But the people that practiced the most self-compassion, which is the antidote to shame, had the lowest inflammation levels. And I think that's just one small example within the scientific literature to show the power that's of something as simple but powerful as self-compassion. How does that influence our physiology? And uh, yeah, and this these are most of the feeling tools that I talk about in the book are completely free. They're completely free other than your time, but they're not easy. When we're talking about neural pathways and habits that we built over the course of our life, coping mechanisms that don't necessarily, that are self-sabotaging, that don't necessarily love us back, it can take time to rewire and retrain our brain. But it's it's important work if we want to start feeling our best. And I think it's so important to kind of identify that when you're, the plan that you're talking about, the 21-day gut feeling plan, you do have recipes, but there's so much more to the plan than that. You know, you mentioned, you know, some of these tools are free. However, they're tools that actually require work. It's not like you can be a passive conduit to the work that you need to be doing. And so let's briefly touch on that. You know, you kind of alluded to it, but perhaps let's walk us through like a typical day where, you know, there's some integration of food, but also these self-compassion exercises, exercises that are going to help support the parasympathetic nervous system better than in our typical hairy lifestyles that we lead. Mm -hmm. And that's a problem, I think, for some, a lot of people within the wellness world is that they are, they tend to be more of a type A personality where they want the the prescription, they want the to-do list, they want the protocol, they want the plan, they want the whatever tell me to do this three times a day and follow it. And that's the feeling stuff can seem a little bit like woo woo, a little bit like unproductive to their analytical mind. But if I would say reframing your perspective towards these feeling tools is important. See, and that's why I call them metaphysical meals. Like see this as nutrition for your biochemistry, just as much as the next meal, just as much as the supplement. Cause honestly, it's going to be for many people more, because I'll say what, when you get the feeling stuff, right, you're going to end up get more, you're going to get more out of your foods. Your digestion and absorption is going to be improved. Your even food choices will be a lot more, uh, proactive and nourishing because you're not going to be eating out of that uh, that stressed state. You're going to be able to make more mindful, conscious decisions, I guess is another way of putting it. So every day there's a gut and a feelings tool. You have some physical action items, something within functional medicine, within clinical nutrition, and then on the feeling side, some mind-body practice, uh, which are on a very uh, physiological level, strengthening that vagus nerve. They are, they, it's like an exercise therapeutic for your vagus nerve. So it's may sound woo-woo when you talk about things like self-compassion, but it's really doing something for your physiology just as much as that meal or that supplement or that biohack or whatever you're talking about. It could be self-compassion. I talk about breath work, talk about meditation, different somatic practices, talk about the research out of Japan and South Korea of forest bathing and how to use that tools that really you can lean into and with consistency really be a significant needle mover in, in your biochemistry. And then, yeah, there, there, you mentioned the recipes. There are 50 plus recipes in the book too of ways to use food that love you back. 
in a flexible way where you're kind of reframing and checking yourself on the foods you're even like not having, right? And, and just saying, does this food love me back? And not follow any one specific food rules, but come up with your own food rules of foods that love you back. Yeah, bioindividuality really is the way. Thank you for this book. Please let my listeners know how to connect with you uh, across social media, how to purchase your book, how to connect with you and your podcast as well. Thank you so much. Uh, everything's at drwillcole.com. Uh, that's D-R-W-I-L-L-C-O-L-E.com. Um, the links to everything that is there. So you can, uh, the pot, my podcast is called the art of being well. Um, we have an episode every week, uh, all the links to all the books are there, the telehealth center, we have new telehealth patient options open now. So yeah, there's everything's at drwillcole.com. Thank you, honestly, again, for having me back and, and getting to catch up. Absolutely. If you love this podcast episode, please leave a rating and review, subscribe and tell a friend. Just as you carefully choose the cut of meat or freshness of produce that you cook at home, you should carefully choose chemical-free cookware that provides a healthy and safe cooking experience. The materials in 360 cookware are safe, sustainable, and of the highest quality. Their cookware is 100% free from any toxic chemicals as the company produces quality stainless steel cookware and bakeware without added chemicals, and all are manufactured in the United States. It's also the leading manufacturer that equips kitchens with cookware and bakeware that are free of all of the toxic chemicals and coatings, including PFAS, Teflon, and ceramic. And the best thing is that when used properly, the product's construction provides nonstick properties in a product that can be passed down through generations. Go to www.360cookware.com and use code CYNTHIA20 for 20% off your first order. Again, that's 360cookware.com and use code CYNTHIA20 for 20% off your first order. We've been using their products over the last several months and have really been pleased with not only the durability, but ease of cleanliness.